Matthew chapter 23. I would like to get into chapter 24 tonight, but I don't think we'll get that far. Um, we might just touch on it a little bit, and I'll give you some a couple of reading assignments that will help with our study next week. But Matthew chapter 23. And again, Father, every time we open up our Bibles and we, we open up our hearts and we really desire for you to sow the seed of your word into our heart, but we open up our hearts, we open up our minds, and we ask your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide that you would lead us into all truth. And we just really pray for your guidance tonight as we study this word. And we don't want to look at this as... Um, well, Jesus is just speaking to these hypocrites and, and, um, and have this be some kind of academic Bible study. Lord, we really, really desire to hear from you and we want you to touch our hearts. So, so God, would you have your way in us and, and may this study just reverberate in our hearts and minds as we, as we leave this place tonight. The, may the words that we hear tonight just really echo over and over until we get it we catch on. And we pray this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, in our last study, we looked at um, chapter 22 last week, and, and it showed Jesus answering the scribes and the Pharisees' questions. And, and you guys know when somebody's asking you a question that's true and honest, and you also know when somebody's asking you a question to derail you or to get you off track or to trip you up or something like that, you know that. Well, if you know that, how much more does the Lord Jesus know that? So he's answering the Pharisees' questions, both with direct answers, and we saw a couple of parables there. But he closes chapter 22 with a question. I want you to focus in with me on uh, verse 41 there. Because... Sometimes a question uh, answers more than an answer ever will. Um, I know there's a couple guys right in this room who have, uh, over the last week or two, been challenged by questions from people who are involved in the occult. And when somebody asks you a question and you have to dig for the answer, that's an amazing thing because you learn so much more by having to dig for the answer. So Jesus closes um, with this question to the Pharisees, verse 41 in chapter 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now you know that the Christ, that's the Messiah. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Well, you know, that's a... That's a pretty good answer because everyone knew, every Jew knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. They all knew that. So they said, he's son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Hmm. No father would call his son Lord. Now that's pretty heavy stuff. We, we touched on this a little bit last week, but then he goes on to say, for he says, and then he quotes from the, from the scriptures here, he quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put 
your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now you can imagine this, this just sent these guys reeling. It's a hard thing to stand toe-to-toe with someone who claims to know the truth but doesn't know Jesus. And that's what we're looking at here. We're looking at the leadership who doesn't know Jesus. They're actually rejecting the Messiah who's standing right toe-to-toe with them. They're rejecting Jesus, claiming that they have the truth. Don't tell me I have the truth. You understand? What a predicament. But verse 46 says, and this is what closes chapter 22, No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So you can tell that they've had their fill. And this one question just sent these guys reeling because they couldn't answer it. Now, Jesus, Jesus is not come to earth to sow confusion. He's come to present the light. He's come to present the very word of God. And in the previous chapters, we looked at Jesus' discourse with the Pharisees. Now, it's going to shift a little bit because now he tells about them as he talks with the crowds and the disciples. So notice how this shifts. He was talking with the Pharisees. Now look at verse 1 in chapter 23. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now he's talking to the multitudes and his disciples. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, First of all, when he talks about the Pharisees sitting in Moses' seat, Moses really came to, to bring the law. He came to bring the law. And when he says that the Pharisees are sitting in Moses' seat, it's, an, it's another way of saying he's ta- they're taking Moses' position and they're dealing in the law. Now, what they were claiming was... They were claiming the authority to teach the law. That's what the Pharisees were claiming. But picture this now. Heaven opens. God sends His Son to reveal Himself, as we see in in, uh, Hebrews, where it says, in times past, God spoke many times in many different ways, diverse ways, through the prophets. But... These these days, in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. So now Jesus comes and speaks to them face to face, toe to toe, and they're rejecting Him. Now, I want to show you just a couple of verses. If you'll just put something in Matthew 23 there. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. We happen to be in Ezekiel on Sunday mornings in our study there. But in Ezekiel chapter 18, I want to show you that Jesus, in teaching the crowds and teaching His disciples of the current leadership, there's an interesting verse in Ezekiel 18.31. See, the Old Testament 
implied the teaching of a rebirth. There's so many places in the Old Testament where the Lord refers to a, a, a new spirit being breathed into them, given a new heart, this whole idea of a rebirth. But the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they should have known this. If they studied the scriptures, they should have known this. Ezekiel 18.31, listen to this. It says, Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Interesting. Verse 32 says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. See, all these guys would have had to do is open their hearts, listen to Jesus' words, apply them to their hearts, and they would live. Instead of being condemned, they would live. Before we go back to Matthew, keep going to the left, this time Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is even more specific, speaking of a new covenant. And this is really pretty cool because it's right in the middle of, of uh, the judgments. Jeremiah's the weeping prophet, remember? And he talks about the destruction that's coming. But then in chapter 31 of Jeremiah and verse 31, I'm going to read verses 31 through 34. Follow along with me. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Oh, that's pretty heavy. So there's this implication in the Old Testament teaching that there's going to be a, a, a rebirth. There's going to be a rebirth. God's going to give them a new heart. He's going to give them uh, a new covenant. Not a covenant under the law, but a covenant of grace. Now back in chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus is going to begin to describe here what I call the dangers of religion. Does that sound weird? The dangers of religion. No, because most of you know that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with the creator of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, who he sent to reveal the Father. So you know, it's not a religion. A lot of people call Christianity, oh, it's just another religion, a world religion. Well, i got news for you. There's a danger in religions. You remember when Paul, in the book of Acts, was traveling through Athens. And he, as he was traveling through the city and walking around the city, he saw all the false gods, the idol gods that were set up. And you remember what his comment was? His comment was, 
I perceive that you people are very religious. And that word, when it's translated, means superstitious. And that's what religion boils down to, superstition. There's a lot of people who think that they're on their way to heaven. And yet Jesus says there's only one way to the Father. Well, that narrows it down a bit, doesn't it? Jesus said there's many, many roads, but they lead to destruction. There's one road, and by the way, it's very narrow, that leads to eternal life. And Jesus said, I'm it. He claimed to be the road. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's a pretty narrow road. But watch what's happening here. They tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. What does that say? They've got it backwards. Jesus said to the disciples, well, you know what? I am your master and your Lord. You speak, you speak the truth, he said in John chapter 13. But he said, being your master and your Lord, I want you to know I came to serve. I came to be a servant. He's telling him this teaching as he washed his disciples' feet. Now these guys, they want to they want to dish out all the burdens. Here, you carry this, you carry that, you do this, you do that, but they themselves won't lift a finger. Everything they do is done for men to see. Well, that's kind of dangerous. In this very gospel, before we go on, I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 6. Right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes some very interesting statements One is when, in the beginning of chapter 6 in Matthew's Gospel, he says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, that's a pretty straightforward warning, isn't it? Don't do stuff so that men can see you doing it. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth. They've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. And I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. And of course you know he goes into uh, to this, what we call the Our Father, or the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Actually, this isn't the Lord's Prayer. You know how I know that. Because he prays to be forgiven for sin and he's never sinned. So it's not Jesus' prayer. If you want to read Jesus' prayer, you need to look at John 17. That's Jesus' prayer. This is referred to as the Lord's Prayer, but this is actually just a model prayer that he gave to his disciples. Now, but with that in mind, those things that he mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount about not doing your deeds so that everybody can see and praise you, go back to Matthew 23 now. And, and, and keep that in mind as you're thinking everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Now, 
the phylacteries, uh, those of you that are going along to, with us to Israel, will you, you may see some of this. Down at the Western Wall, um, where many of the Orthodox go to, to worship or to pray, <coughs> they, they'll walk by and they'll have a certain kind of dress. And you can tell basically what sect they're from by what they're wearing. And sometimes they'll have these little boxes and they'll be tied with leather onto their wrists or onto their foreheads, little boxes. And the boxes have little compartments in them and in the compartments are scripture verses. And the scripture verses would be, like if there are four compartments on this little phylactery tied to their forehead, would be the same as the four scripture verses they're carrying in their wrist. And, and, and um, the idea is back in the Old Testament law, Moses told the people to, to take God's word and, and, and to, uh, to tie it on, on, their, on their wrist and their forehead to, to, um, to keep God's word in their mind, you know, and so they would have these phylacteries. But what Jesus is saying is he's looking at these guys and he says they make their phylacteries wide. So now it wasn't just this little inconspicuous thing anymore. Now it's like this big deal, you know. Uh, if you're reading the King James, and I think I think it says they broaden the phylacteries. You know, it, it's it's like they make a big deal out of it. They're they're doing this for a show, and the and the tassels on their garments, you know, they're going to make them long. And they love the place of honor. It says in verse six at the banquet and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. I want you to see something here, though. What's taking place here, it would be kind of like, um, how could I put it in modern terms? Well, maybe, um, maybe the big old bumper sticker on your car. You know, Maybe the big Jesus t-shirt. Um, maybe giving for show. Or, or bragging about what you give, or liking to make you know you like to make long prayers. This can really hit home if we look at it in the light of of how we live and the things that we do. Do we want to be known as somebody really spiritual? Let me give you an example. I walked into the grocery store <coughs> just. Um, Oh, this was just a few days ago. And one of the ladies that, she's been working there for some time, but she didn't really know who I was or, or anything. I walked in there the other day and she says, Well, good morning, Reverend. And I spun around and I said, Excuse me? She said, Good morning, Reverend. I looked behind me. I kind of looked around and and and. She was surprised, you know, that I was turning around looking for somebody. And, and I said, me? And she said, yeah. And I said, um, boy, if you call me that, that's a sure sign you don't know me. And she kind of looked shocked that I would say that. And come to find out, one of the young girls that works there also goes to church here and put her up to it to say that to me as I walked in. And... And, and so, you know, we had a kind of a laugh on it, but I, I told her, I said, um, 
I said, you know, every once in a while I'll get a letter in the mail and it'll, it'll say, you know, to, to Reverend Waters or whatever. And I usually go back out to the mailman and say, I don't know, nobody here by that name. You know, I really believe that that kind of a title, that title Reverend is reserved for one and only one. God is the only one that I know that's Reverend. He's the only one that I know that's holy. He calls us to be holy, but I tell you, if, if it were up to us to be holy in order to make heaven our home, we'd all be lost. It's only because Jesus paid the price for us. that, And it's His holiness, it's His righteousness that covers us. Yes, I want to serve Him. Yes, I want to love Him. Yes, I want to do the right things. But don't call me reverend. You know, don't do that. And, and so, just an example, but Jesus is saying about these guys, they love to be greeted in the marketplaces like this. They love the titles. They love the hierarchy. They love to be elevated above other people. He says, but look at verse 8. And notice that this is all for show. This is all for show. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. Do you realize that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ? There isn't any one of us that's any better than any other one of us. I used to get kind of a kick out of it because, I mean, you guys know this is how we dress on a Sunday morning. This is how we... This, it, it's not that we want to be sloppy. It's, it's just that there's, you know, what you see is what you get and we don't, we're not pretentious about what we wear to the service or whatever. We, we're just here. But it's interesting because every once in a while we'll get a visitor... And the visitor will have a three-piece suit and tie. And, and, uh, and, and then when somebody else who's visiting comes in, they always go up to the visitor with the three-piece suit and tie and say, Are you the pastor? And he goes, No, this is my first time here. you know. And it's just kind of interesting. But understand, we're all brothers and sisters. There is no, there, there is no elevation in the church. And that's why I, I imagine Jesus... And his disciples always arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom, you know, who's gonna I get to sit on his right and his left and, and you know, who's the greatest? And Jesus was always trying to tell them the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. He was always trying to get it through to them that it's not about climbing this ladder like they do in the world. Those are the Gentile kingdoms. That's not the kingdom of God. So he's looking at this hierarchy, he's looking at these guys who like to be elevated because of their titles, and he says don't call him rabbi. You have only one master and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven. Now, please don't misunderstand this. This doesn't mean um, you can't call your dad dad. Or I know some children who even call their dad father. It's talking about in a spiritual sense. It's talking about in a spiritual sense. Let me give you an example. I came from a church where... Uh, the pastor, teachers, um, the elders, if you will, the, the priests, if you will, were called father, and father so-and-so, and father so-and-so. And, and, and when you would greet them, you always called them by father so-and-so. Well, after I became a Christian, after I started reading, my, actually before I became a Christian, when I first started reading the Bible, and I read Jesus' words here, I had a real, time, I, I had a real hard time getting that out. You know, just even saying, Father so-and-so, I, I'd say, is there something else I can call you? I mean, 
you know, Jesus tells me I'm not supposed to do that in a spiritual sense. I'm not supposed to place somebody above me in a spiritual sense like that. And I just had a real hard time with it. Because we have one Father. He's our Father in Heaven. Now, when I get into the, um, when I get into the New Testament epistles, and I see... The Apostle Paul, for example, referring to Timothy as his son, my son Timothy. Um, I think there is a, a spiritual truth to that, but Paul doesn't build a doctrine around that or, or, or anything else, and I don't think we should either. I think that those people that come... For example, if I have an opportunity to lead someone to Christ and I pray with them for the... who you know. Who gave them birth? Me? Am I their father? No, I'm not their father. If I baptize someone, and I've baptized hundreds of people over the years down at at Morrow Lake, you know, am I their spiritual father? No, they have one father in heaven. And they're certainly not going to call me father. Jesus said, don't do it. He just said, don't do it. Don't call anyone on earth father. You have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher. For you have one teacher, the Christ. What's he speaking of here? We have teachers. We have Bible teachers. We have Sunday school teachers. We have teachers in school. No, no, again, he's talking about in a spiritual sense. In a spiritual sense. The teacher here, and and if you've heard me say this once, you've heard me say it a thousand times, the teacher here is the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read this and we're going to read along together, but if anyone is teaching us and leading us and guiding us into all truth, it's the Holy Spirit. And again, if somebody says, boy, you're really a good teacher, i got news for you. <laughs> you know, if you get anything out of this at all, it's not me. It's not me. I know because I have to edit the tapes. And I take all the uh and the, and the uh, take all those out. Um, you know, I think I could I could just have a whole if I just took a tape instead of just deleting those things and throwing them into a black hole in my computer somewhere. If I took and made a tape out of those, I could have like hours of uh, you know, you know, you know. So to edit them for the radio, all that stuff comes out. Don't say that. It's not the Holy Spirit is going to teach us and lead us and guide us into all truth, despite what an idiot I am. Okay. The idea is, Jesus goes on to say, the greatest among you will be your servant. Now that sounds so weird. The greatest among you will be your servant. But it's not. It's a spiritual truth that you and I need to get a hold of. And here's why I say that. Because many people call themselves Christians and they're in the Christian church, but they're not lifting a finger to serve the body of Christ. Not a finger. Well, how does, that, how does that make us any different if we're not lifting a finger to sit? Now listen, listen carefully because I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you, but here's what I'm saying. If we're a member of the body of Christ and we never lift a finger to serve the body of Christ, what then? What then? What are you saying here, Lord? The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, here's the rub. These guys wanted to be elevated because of what they wore, because of their position, because of their education, because of their bloodline, because of all these things that they had nothing to do with. They had absolutely nothing to do with this stuff. 
But now that they're in this position, ooh, call me rabbi. That's scary. That's scary. And someone the other day just came up to me and was talking about a, a, a pastor that was just out, uh, I forget what they were doing, uh, some kind of games or something they were playing, and somebody called him by his first name, and he said, no, you call me Pastor So-and-so. And I just thought, what? what is that? That's scary. And then he goes into these woes. Woe to you. Woe to you. And this is a way of Jesus getting their attention and, and teaching. So now he's talking to the teachers and he's talking to uh, the Pharisees. He's talking to these lawyers, teachers of the law. He says, verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Do you know what a hypocrite is? A hypocrite is somebody who wants to project one image on the outside. He wants to project something, but on the inside it's totally the opposite. Jesus called it just like it was. Now you might say, oh, this kind and loving Jesus, this humble, gentle Jesus would call someone a hypocrite? Listen, you haven't heard the half of it. If you haven't read this chapter yet, I think you're probably going to be pretty shocked by the time that we get to the end of this. Because yes, this loving Jesus, this caring, humble servant Jesus loves these guys enough to warn them. We need to remember that. Woe to you, teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. That must have really had a sting to it. Jesus called them right on the carpet because here's what they were doing. They were seeking these titles to foster their own pride, to build up their own self-esteem. Call me rabbi. Call me teacher. Call me... He says, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Yikes. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. This is the second time he uses that word. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. This is my humble Jesus? I'm telling you, Jesus loved these guys so much that he wanted to warn them. And he wanted to let them know where they were headed. Hmm. Woe to you, blind guides. Look at some of these words. Blind guides. A couple of weeks ago, we were here at a study. And after the study was over, we prayed together. And we said, Lord, would you... Give us an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. Just open a door that we might have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. And one of the guys that was here at the study, as a matter of fact, it's the first time he was ever here. He prayed that prayer with us. And the next morning, imagine that. The next morning, he opens up his door to two watchtower guys standing on his front porch. And he had an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And I thought, how cool. Well, of course, they wouldn't listen. 
and and they argued with them and they took them around in circles with a bunch of scriptures and and so um, they had a couple questions for him and he said well why don't you let me look those up for you I'll look the answers up for you and I'll get back to you or you can come back and we'll discuss them so he sent them on their way and they came back the next day and he answered their questions but it was pretty apparent that they didn't want answers to those questions really they didn't want answers what they were looking for was a loophole to tangle him up so that they could put their doctrine on him they didn't want scriptural answers they didn't want biblical answers they wanted somebody that they could twist around with these few scripture verses and make them think that their doctrines were true. So again, you know, he got nowhere. So he called me up a couple days later. <clears throat> he says, hey, he says, uh, do you think that you could come over and, and we could sit down with these two guys and just have a Bible study? And I said, I would love to. I would love to. And so they came over. And, and of course, we got together an hour early and we called everybody we knew. Many of you people were notified to pray for us because we were getting together with a couple of the elders from the watchtower up here in Stevens Point. And, um, and as we got together and we began to talk, same thing, same thing. After our entire conversation, it appeared to me that there's, there's a whole network, huge network, of people who are leading other people Jesus calls them blind guides. Now, they claim to know the Word of God. But somebody tell me, if I was to ask you, what's his name? Who's called the Word of God all through the Scriptures? Jesus. Now, how can you know the Word of God and not know Jesus? It's not possible. They're blind guides. Blind. Do you not understand what happens to people who are led by blind guides? Jesus said if a blind man leads a blind man, they both fall in the ditch. And that's what happens. He calls these Pharisees. And you have that, that little sheet right in front of you on the back side of that timeline of Jesus. There's a, 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 some of the Jewish sects that were there in that time. The first one there is the Pharisees. And on that handout there, it says, their roots can be traced to the 2nd century B.C., to the Hasidim. And listen to some of their beliefs. This is kind of interesting. Along with the Torah, they accepted as equally inspired and authoritative all the material contained in the oral tradition. So the Torah, being the first five books of the Scripture, that's a Hebrew word that, that really encompasses uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If, if we use the Greek word for that, it would be Pentateuch. But the, but the Hebrew word is Torah. So they believed in the Torah, but they also believed in all these oral traditions. Now, the oral traditions, after a couple centuries, they wrote them down. It's called the Mishnah. It's that one thick book I showed you one day. And I forget, I think Jane was over here the other day, and I said, just open that up anywhere and start reading. And she did. She started reading out loud some of the laws in there, and it was absolutely crazy. But they held those things up at the same level as the Torah. Number two there, it says, on free will and determination, they held to a, a mediating view that made it impossible 
for either free will or the sovereignty of God to cancel out the other. They accepted a rather developed hierarchy of angels and demons. They taught that there was a future for the dead. They believed in the uh, immortality of the soul and reward and retribution after death. So, you know, I mean, they're not all bad. I mean, they believe in some of these things that are true. They were champions of human equality, so there was kind of a political side to them, too. The emphasis of their teaching was ethical rather than theological. They looked at things very practically, but they never took anything into consider. Let me give you an example. How about the woman that was caught in adultery? Now, they're trying to trip Jesus up, so they bring this woman to Jesus, and they say, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses said we should stone her. What do you say? Now, I'm really impressed at how Jesus handled that because I would have said, well, it takes two to commit adultery, right? Here's the woman. She's caught in the very act. Where's the man? Okay? Jesus didn't even go there. He didn't even take it there. They said, Moses says you should stone her. What do you say? See, they're trying to get him to disagree with the law. If he says stone her, it goes against everything he stands for. If he says let her go, he's going against the law of Moses. So they figure they got him both ways. So what does he do? He stoops down, he begins to write in the sand. And the scriptures don't tell us what he wrote. But it's interesting that as he wrote, whatever it was he was writing in the sand, all these guys, one at a time, and it says from the oldest to the youngest, took off. Now, I don't know what he was writing. I can only speculate. But they started leaving one at a time. Now, I probably would have said, not only where's the man, I probably would have said, you know what? The law of Moses doesn't say stone her. The law of of Moses says stone them. But I don't know what he wrote on the ground, but they all began to disappear. Then he looks at this woman and he says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, they're all gone, Lord. He said, well, then neither do I accuse you. Go your way and sin no more. You know, that's pretty heavy. You can look through the other uh, uh, sects that are on this page. There's the Sadducees and a write-up about them. And, of course, we talked about the Sadducees last week a little bit and how they they were sad, you see, because uh, they didn't believe in in uh, the resurrection and they didn't believe in angels and they didn't, you know. Uh, then the Zealots and the Essenes. You can read about those on that handout there. But listen to what Jesus is saying here. He's, he says, he calls them blind guides in verse 16. And he says, you say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Now how ridiculous is that? See, this is where the oral traditions are coming in and taking, not just taking uh, equal ground, but superseding what God wrote. How many times do we see that? No, as a young Christian, as a young believer, when I put my faith in Jesus, I also put my faith in His Word. And if something comes up in the teaching that's contrary to the Word of God, I'm going to go with the Word of God. I don't care what you believe. You believe whatever you want to believe. This is one of the reasons that even before I was a Christian, I made an appointment to see my teacher, my priest, my pastor, 
And I had some questions because I had just started reading the Bible. I wasn't even a Christian yet. I just had some questions and I went in there and every question I asked him, he gave me some philosophical answer for or some theological answer. But he couldn't go to Scripture and give me an answer. And so after about an hour conversation with this man, he looked across the table at me over his pile of books because he was pulling a new book out for every question I had. I'm just a young guy sitting here with a Bible asking questions. And after he's looking over all these books, and he said to me, well, I can see what your problem is. You've been reading the Bible. Now, I was kind of shocked. But here's what he told me. You can't read the Bible and understand it. What makes you think you can read the Bible and understand it? I went to school for years to understand this stuff. That's where the Pharisees are coming from. Blind guides. Blind guides. Listen. It's not, well, you can swear by the temple. That means nothing. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, you're bound by an oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spice, mint, dill, cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now listen very carefully because Jesus is starting to get to something here. Remember, tithing. Oh yeah, we tithe. We give a 10% of everything right down to the little spices. If I have this much spice, I'm going to take a tenth of it, I'm going to set it aside, I'm going to give it to the Lord. You get right down to splitting hairs when it comes to stuff like that, but you've forgotten the weightier matters. You've forgotten about justice. You've forgotten about mercy. You've forgotten about faithfulness. Now, what's Jesus saying? That don't tithe? Is he saying it's, that's not important? No, look what he says. He says, you should, have, you should pr have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. See, Jesus isn't saying that tithing isn't important. He's saying you should have done the, the latter, that is, practice justice and mercy and faithfulness without neglecting the tithing. You blind guides. There it is again. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What in the world does that mean? Well, you can get really nitpicky about something little, but the important matters, you just let them slide. The practice was, you know, when you're, when you're drinking your wine, you're drinking your wine outside, you might get a gnat in it. You might get, you know, those little noceums. You might get one of those in there. And if, and if a rabbi was sipping his wine and he swallowed a gnat, he would put his finger down his throat so he could throw up. You know why? Because the gnat was, it was un impure, it was unclean. It had blood in it. So they'd strain their wine, they'd sift their wine to make sure there weren't any gnats in it, but they'll swallow a camel? That's kind of a weird picture. It's kind of funny. But 
Jesus is trying to point something out. You, you, you take the, you nitpick at stuff, and you take these little things. But the weightier matters, the things that you should be looking at, you don't even think about them. You'll, you'll strain the wine because gnats aren't kosher, but you'll swallow a camel. Unbelievable. Woe to you, teachers, verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and selfish indulgence. I don't know, but when I drink out of a cup, (laughs) when I drink out of a cup and I want a nice cold glass of water, I want a nice cold glass of water out of a nice clean cup. And the last thing I want to do is tap a nice cold glass of water into glass, get it about halfway down, and then see these little milk things on the bottom of the cup kind of dangling around, you know, or whatever, you know. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? Somebody didn't quite get all the way down to the bottom of the glass and get that stuff out of there, and you're, you you know, here after you got I didn't mean to gross you out, but I just want you to understand... Jesus is talking about you clean the outside of the cup and the dish. You do a real nice job at that, but inside. And who wants to drink from a filthy cup? You're full of greed and self-indulgence. Greed and self-indulgence. Uh, last week at Hesed, Mark read Second Timothy chapter 3 about what you know Paul writes to Timothy and says that in the last days there's going to be terrible times. And this is what he's talking about. So it's not just for 2,000 years ago. The greed and the self-indulgence, we're dealing with that today. And we better ask the Lord, Lord, tonight would be a great time for us to all take an inventory and just say, really, where am I in this? Where am I in this? Lord, is it the outside of me that looks so clean and pure and on the inside I'm seething and I'm bubbling, I'm greedy and I'm self-indulgent and it's I, me, mine and I'm, you know. Be careful. We can be just like these blind Pharisees, we can be just like this. And he says, blind Pharisee, verse 26, first, clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. You know, God looks at the inside. He looks at the heart. As we went through Matthew chapter 5 through 7, what were we looking at? We were looking at the be attitudes. Attitudes, that's an inside thing. That's a heart thing. That's a mind thing. And we can be real pure on the, on the outside. And we can make people think, oh, you know, he's such a nice guy. You know, he's such a good teacher. But God looks at us and he goes, I know what's going on in your mind. I know what's going on in your heart. I think we really need to be more concerned about what God thinks of us than what men think of us. And it's not about titles. And it's not about what anybody thinks of us except the Lord. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. It's interesting when we get to Israel and we're walking down from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley there and over to the old city of Jerusalem, you'll walk through some, some graveyards. You'll walk through some cemeteries and they're kept up nice and they, and they do. They whitewash the stones. There's all stones and they're beautiful. They're whitewashed. But on the inside of these things, 
They're full of dead men's bones. And the Lord is saying, that's what, looking at you, that's what I see. I see somebody who's all whitewashed, very clean. You like the phylacteries and you like the widen them, you know, big and this and doing your alms before men and, and, and all this. But he says, whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. I was walking alongside Ido, our tour guide, and I said to, to Ido, I said, you know, Ido, I said, in every one of those tombs, there's a light. And he said, a light? What do you mean? I said, an Israelite. <laughs> I got to remember that one, he said. I just thought I'd lighten it up there a little. I was getting kind of... I don't want to be scowling at you guys. This is Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here. I don't need to be mad at you. I got to remember that. Now... He goes on to say, in the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, think about this. Hypocrisy and wickedness on the leaders of the church? What's going on? Well, I would encourage you that if you've never done this, look into the history of the church. Look into the history of the church. It's a bloody past. It's a wicked past. It's an evil past. And when these Watchtower guys, the first thing they wanted to do was point out to me how evil, all the evil in all the churches. And I said, you don't have to go there. I know the scriptures. I read chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. All you have to do is read chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. The church isn't even 100 years old yet. And Jesus is saying, look, you either repent or I'm going to remove your lampstand. You know what that was? What the lampstand was? It was their testimony. I'm going to take your testimony away. And I said, so bro, don't waste your breath. I know that there's evil in the church. I understand that. We need to repent. And I said, I'm sorry that most Christians think that you guys know your Bibles. I'm sorry about that. I know you don't know your Bibles. I said, I apologize for the church that can't stand up to you and take you into Scripture and show you the error of your way. I said, you want to, he wanted to read one verse out of Psalm 37. Let's go to Psalm 37. And I know where he's going. He, he's going to the verse that says, the meek will inherit the earth. That's what they want to prove. They want to proof text that. I said, okay, we'll go to Psalm 37. And you, I said, I'll read the first 10 verses and then you can read the next 10 verses. And I looked at the other guy and said, you can read the next 10 verses. And let's go through Psalm 37. You know what he said? We don't have time for that. I said, you don't have time for God's word? What's the matter with you? See, they don't want to talk to you when you tell them that. You don't take one verse out of, you know what I call that when you do that? That's Bible roulette. That's what I call it. You want to play Bible roulette? Go play somewhere else. I don't play that game. You want to take one verse from here and 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 then build a church on it? Let's not. When we were kids, we used to say, let's not and say we did. But I don't even want to say we did. Let's just not. Let's not. Now, he says, inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. These are the leaders, you guys. Jesus is standing up to the leaders. You want to know why they killed him? This whole thing about Mel Gibson's movie coming out and they're afraid it's going to be, people are going to take it as anti-Semitic. This is why they wanted to kill Jesus, because he stood up to the leadership. And by the way, it wasn't any nationality. 
that killed Jesus. It wasn't some group of people that killed Jesus. It was your sins and my sins that put Jesus on the cross. And by the way, they couldn't have done that with all the soldiers on earth. He went there like a lamb to the slaughter. He walked there. Have you noticed that in the scriptures, when we get to the crucifixion, this will blow your mind. The Bible says they led him to Calvary. Most guys had to be driven and whipped and poked and prodded and dragged. They led Jesus to Calvary because he went willingly. So it's not about being anti-Semitic. He's telling the teachers of the law here. Look at verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets. And by the way, that's what they call that. They call that the tombs of the prophets as you're coming through the Kidron Valley there. That's what they refer to that as. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. Now, how is that any different than you and I saying, you know what, if I'd have been there, I wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Be careful. Be careful. Somebody made a comment here before study this morning about that one, the one verse where the people shouted out, let his blood be on our heads and on our children. I guess that was taken out of the movie, The Passion, because that would have been considered anti-Semitic. But I, I, I made the comment to that comment, you better hope we're covered by his blood. They were saying it as, as in, we'll take responsibility. But you don't want to step into eternity without being covered by the blood of the Lamb. You don't want to go there. Jesus is saying, fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes. Whoa, this is our humble Jesus? This is the one. And how many people try to make Jesus out to be this little weakling, this little milk toast of a guy? That was. I want to tell you something, Jesus. Don't confuse meekness and weakness. At any moment in time, Jesus could have brought a legion of angels to deliver him. He went willingly. He went willingly. He was in obedience to his father. You snake, you brood of vipers. Do you, know what you, do you know what that means? He's telling these guys that they were hatched from snake eggs. You brood of vipers, that's what it means. Your, your parents are serpents. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers, and some of them you'll kill and crucify. Others you'll flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. He's going all the way back to the blood of the prophets. From the blood of, of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Now, that's an interesting word and an interesting phrase. I want you to remember that, this generation, because it's going to be used again in Matthew chapter 24. Um, the Greek 
Um, I'm not really sure about the pronunciation. It's kind of strange. It's like um, Gena'a. It's not. It's not Gehenna. That's totally different. I mean, it's so easy to mispronounce these words. But the Greek word literally means this family or this this group of people. You might think of a, of a generation as just the ones who were right there at that particular time. But it's an interesting phrase. I tell you the truth. All this will come upon this generation. No. You don't think Jesus loves these people? It sounds like he's pretty upset. It sounds like he's pretty angry. I'm telling you, he's telling these people this because he loves them and he wants to warn them. They needed to be warned. These men were far from God. They were claiming to be near God, but they were far from God and they needed to be warned. I want you to know that Jesus desires repentance, not judgment. Judgment is a last a last resort. He wants repentance. Now listen to this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Does that sound like somebody who wants to come and just squish these guys like a bug? No, it sounds like somebody who's desperate and weeping and wants them to repent and turn. He says, how many times, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing? Look, your house is left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he, who comes in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> Think about this. Those last couple of verses there in chapter 23, we see three things. We see a purpose. The purpose of all history is in verse 37. The purpose of all history is in verse 37. Listen to it. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's the purpose of all history. It's going to end up that way because the Lord's going to come back and redeem Israel. But that's His design. That's His purpose. That's His plan for Israel. The purpose of all history. But we also see the tragedy of all history in verse 38. Look, your house is left to you desolate. That's the tragedy. Look there now. Look what they're going through now. So 37 gives us the purpose of all history. 38 gives us the tragedy of all history. And 39 gives us the third point, the triumph of all history. Look at this. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. No, wait a minute. What did he mean by that? Because they did see him. I mean, they crucified him. They saw him. No, you're not going to see him again until he comes in his glory. The idea is here, you will be under such incredible persecution that you will cry out for my return. You'll cry out for my... Now, you guys know the ending because we've been there. But I want you to do something. I want you to, to, um, to take a look at um, the book of Daniel. 
if you have an opportunity this week. And I want you to take a look at the book of Revelation this week. Uh, it might seem like an overwhelming assignment to read those two books, but I guarantee that if you do that, before you come into Matthew chapter 24, you'll be glad you did. You'll be glad you did. I know many of you have the Bible on MP3 or you have Faith Comes by Hearing and you have those books. Get a tape deck, listen to those two books. Whatever you need to do, try to go through Daniel and Revelation because this is really the bridge between the two. Matthew 24 is a bridge between Daniel and Revelation. And if you know what lies on both shores, you'll understand the bridge. Go ahead and read Matthew chapter 24 and understand that it's very Jewish. Okay? A lot, of get, a lot of people get really messed up and they read the church into here and they see a lot of things. But you need to understand, Matthew chapter 24 is a very Jewish book. And so we're going to take up here next week in Matthew 24. Pray for me as I study this out to present it. I want to rightly divide the word of truth. Let me just leave you with this. The traditional teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees were rejected by Jesus. The dogmas, the rituals, the traditions meant nothing to him. So how can we build or say that we're saved by some organization or some tradition or some religion or some set of laws? And I'm going to close with one verse. If you've already closed your Bible, just that's okay, just don't close your mind because you need to hear this. Jot the scripture reference down if you need to. It's found in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 21. And I would say that if, if you haven't memorized the verse of scripture in a long time, this would be a good one. It says this, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing that heavy? I don't set aside the grace of God. Because if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray.